Welcome to the Promised Land Podcast. I'm your host, Antonio Saunders. Our second discussion in our series, White Work, is centered around James, someone who's important to me, who's a decent and nice white guy, who now has to engage with his white peers to understand the hidden truths in his community. But he's kind of stuck on what he should do and where he should go. James is a young white educator and mentee who is working to be a good steward of society. But in a summer long immersive professional development experience, I decided to do something a little bit unconventional and likely risk my paycheck. I made a departure from our traditional diversity, equity and inclusion programming where we would put people of color into affinity spaces and white people would just have a break. For the first time, James and many others in the white affinity space were confused and baffled at what they were going to do with each other. So we find James leaning over to one of his close women of color friends as he struggles to understand what he's supposed to talk about with his other white peers. It's a moment that's the beginning of a series of unmasking for James as he is forced to confront his whiteness in a new way for the first time. Like he recalls to my co-host Laura and I, in today's discussion, James is about to confront several truths about himself, society, his identity, and the institutions he inherently puts his faith in. He'll begin to see that whiteness and white supremacy aren't solely the acts you decry. The plowing down of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville by white nationalists Dylan Roof walking into a South Carolina church, murdering a room full of black parishioners, or the horrific images and injustices of the civil rights movement. It's also about the interior incentives and limited perspectives that uphold whiteness as a standard and hold on to the notion that anyone else should have license and access to their own humanity. So as he packs his stuff and begins to walk to a room, preparing to join a group of other white people, he'll begin to realize that it's the beginning of a lot of conversation that he's about to have. But before that even happens, James's white work begins with an off-the-cuffs remark from one of his co-workers and friend, an African-American woman whose four words shake up his worldview. Welcome to my world. Yeah, so, um, so in 2013, I think it was, I started in Tal Academy and it was my first introduction to the idea of institutionalized racism and racism as a structure and not a single act. And this is this well-intentioned white boy who's been volunteering and saying all the right things and voting the right way and doing all these things. And all of a sudden, I'm reading Beverly Tatum and hearing that no matter what all this is, I am still on the moving sidewalk. And I still continue to benefit from being a white man and a white supremacist society. And as this was being deconstructed and I was learning about this, my, my big aha moment came in one interaction with one of my current best friends, which was after reading Beverly Tatum. Um, Antonio asked us to separate into affinity groups and he said all the black people are going to go in a group together and talk about things and all the Latino people are going to go in a group together and talk about things and he looked at me and he said all the white people are going to go in a group together and talk about things and we're like what what are we going to talk about and I turned to my friend who's a woman of color and half jokingly but half serious said hey 
I don't feel comfortable getting in a group with, with people based on what I look like. Right. That's, that's not a good thing. And all she had to say was welcome to my world. And I was like, Oh my God, isn't that right? Um, and that was a moment where I knew I needed to commit to the real work of, uh, deconstructing the institutions that are racist and not just trying to uh, fight against just racist acts or moments. So, so um, James, take me into the moment where, you know, you, you've, you've turned your um, friend and she says, welcome to my world. And you leave that big main room and you walk into a smaller room and there's a bunch of white folks around. What, what happened and what was that like? <laughs> I mean, excuse my French, but it's like, oh shit, what are we going <laughs> to, what are we going to do? And, um, the first, uh, the first feeling is awkwardness because it's nothing any of us have talked about. Um, I think the second feeling, at least for me is like back to guilt, which I think is an unproductive feeling. Um, but feeling like, you know, when white people got in spaces together, there's been a lot of bad results. So how do we do this differently? Um, and then, you know, as we got into that room, it became clear um, how each of us were approaching this topic differently. Um, I, you know, of course, there's multiple identity mark markers. So there's a white woman there. There was a white man who came from like a low SES background. Um, and it was really hard to keep the conversation about race. Because you want to affirm um, all those other things, you know, the, the white woman is saying, well, I'm also a woman, so a lot of things have been hard. And that is true. You want to affirm that. But that, is not, that was not the topic of our conversation. And same thing with another white man. You know, I'm, I'm uh, a white man, but I grew up in these tough conditions. And, and, and okay, that's true. We want to affirm that. But that's not the purpose of our conversation. So it was, it was hard to even stay on topic. Um, and I don't know that we got very far the first time we did it. I think it was like the third and fourth time we did it when we could have, um, more vulnerable conversations about how that was, what that meant about how we lived our lives this far and what it meant about what we would have to do going forward. Um, but it's interesting because as we got to this point where we're talking about what is white work and all those, uh, affinity groups where we sat with white people, we never got to a place of commitment or what our work would look like now in our community. Um, we just kind of talked about our feelings, I guess, which is, which is a, a way to start, but it's interesting that through all those, all that time and when our purpose in this Tal Academy was to understand how race plays a role in all the things that is going on for us. And specifically in the classroom, we never actually got to an action point. And that was like the purpose of our work in some ways. Um, and I think it's because it was hard and uncomfortable to do. So I'm hoping we can get an action point now. <laughs> Thanks for that, James. I can relate personally to, um, to the different ahas and the different reflections and the emotions that come with that. How, um, how do you relate to your whiteness today? <laughs> Um, it's funny cause like that feels such a awkward and weird answer to give, but that's the problem, right? That, that people don't have an answer to that. Uh, 
the honest thing for so long was guilt and trying to learn that if I spend all my time being guilty as a white person, then I'm still asking people to take care of me, which is how we kind of got in this situation is that I've been better taken care of by various institutions. Um, so then I started to relate to my whiteness is this piece of privilege, but that I wanted to wield as espionage. Like I was going to infiltrate white spaces and, you know, break down foundations or, you know, steal the codes or what, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, and I, I felt like there was something to be said about that, but now I feel like relating to my whiteness, there's work. And this is becoming more clear to me as I'm becoming a parent, we're expecting a daughter this fall and we have a lot of white friends. And as we have conversations about where we're going to live, where we send our kids to school, it becomes clear to me that I have a responsibility as a white man in these white circles to have bigger conversations about institutionalized racism and segregation and um, how we talk about our schools with them too. James is a white educator who chose to work in low-income schools so that kids in his community who don't look like him and don't share the same racial background can get the education they deserve. Inherently within that kind of orientation, you can imagine that James is like, I'm not out here racist, I'm fighting for the cause. So my self-perceptions is that there's some goodness and there's some innocence. And what you find with white liberals, especially white liberal men, is that they struggle to make the connection between their privilege, their place in society, and their responsibilities to change the institutions, not to just work in them. It plays out like this. White people are groomed and positioned in society to sit at the heads of tables and organizations to shepherd experiences they've never had but directly contribute to instead of actually teaching white people to redistribute the unearned privilege access and power that they've been given in society to those that they seemingly want to help it is not help that we need it is actually institutional wealth power and access and that does not come from charity that comes from white consciousness James and Laura continue their conversation, they begin to explore some deeper tensions. Namely, what does it mean to have a value orientation around racial justice, but not live out those values when you get the chance? What does allyship mean in the face of peer pressure? What does it mean to be vulnerable about racial justice and values when it may come at your cost? Um, so taking that into my work, um, after that experience, it was six weeks and then followed by another summer that was six weeks. I felt really prepared um, and I felt really as is uh, very popularly called woke and I was ready to talk about institutionalized racism and I, I could pick out things in a situation that weren't right and I was an ally and when I took this into my work, I knew that the school to prison pipeline existed and that little boys uh, were being suspended, little boys of color were being suspended at rates way, way higher than their white peers. And then particularly in my setting where there's mostly Latino students and a few African-American students. And then 
the African-American students are suspended at a way higher rate than even Latino boys. Um, we saw this happening. We just made the decision to stop suspending. Um, and I think in that moment, we, we did a good thing as being an ally. Um, but I realized that just because I had decided to do that, I hadn't changed the minds of any of the teachers who were teaching these children. I hadn't changed the minds of any of the people who were my boss, who oversaw the work I did. Um, and it made me realize there was more than just trying to be an ally and using my positional authority to make a change, but to actually talk with some of my, my fellow white people and take a look at the broader system and why we needed to do things differently. Um, which is kind of pertinent to, to where we find ourselves today, I suppose, talking right now. Yeah, we'll work on that. We'll work on that. Sounds like you've given yourself some action points. So I, I, I hear, you know, as you're thinking about suspension, as you're thinking about becoming uh, a parent, how, how, how do you understand your responsibility for action right now? I think, um, I think what I'm trying to understand is how do I pivot from being an ally? You know, there's a good question asked, why do all these white people show up in communities of color to do work? Why don't they go to their own community? I mean, we have, you know, a president who uses, you know, Nazi type behavior and propaganda and supports blatant white supremacists. And we see like white nationalists crawling out of the woodwork. And it's like the problem that we don't need to be going to communities of color to be talking about this. We need to be going to, in my setting, North Scottsdale. That happens to be the zip code that donated the most to Trump in the entire nation um, is in my state, right? So, so I'm doing plenty of work knocking on doors in downtown Phoenix, but why am I not going to North Scottsdale? So I'm trying to figure out what does it mean to go from being an ally, so uh, working alongside to actually going and working in my own community. And right now, as I see my closest community, I see it is trying to give people a different lens to look at their surroundings and look at the conflicts or challenges that they're facing in their community. I mean, the most pertinent one is people are talking about quality of schools and our schools are segregated. And when I hear someone say, well, I don't want to move in this neighborhood because there's bad schools. What I actually hear them saying is that mostly kids of color go to that school and it's not high achieving. I don't think they mean to say that, but if they were to actually look at the data and understand the history of the neighborhoods that they are choosing to live in or not live in, they would understand that that is exactly what they're saying. Um, and I, I'm trying to understand what my responsibility is to address that comment, to do it consistently and to do it in a way that people can learn and grow and not, uh, you know, crawl back in their shell. So let's, let's start with that first question. How, for where you are right now, James, how, how are you defining what is white work? Well, I think uh, I've been pushed most recently to try and uh, redefine that word. For, for a long time, you know, white work for me was about allyship. Um, it was about using my positional authority to, you know, undercut what I viewed as a racist institution. Um, and that, that was both personally and, and professionally in some ways, I think. And that, that would be, you know, from who got suspended at my school and, and if they got suspended, it might be how I hire people. It might be how I choose who goes to trainings. 
trying to subvert that. But I think, and, and going back to like, I think a lot about the current political climate, it's important to understand what am I doing, not just for myself, but for other white folks that I know. Um, and to me, that's where I'm thinking about what white work has to be. Um, and, 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 and it's a question of how do I bring people along? And, and I think one of the things I talked with a, a friend about, you know, when you're talking about this kind of stuff, you say, well, I, I have privilege, right? I was, I was born into a position of privilege. I have privilege in this society. And, and that's true. And it's good to know that. My feeling about white work is that it's going to revolve around what we do with that privilege. And, and what I mean by that is there's a conversation I had with someone is how much of our privilege are we willing to risk? If I get hired by a fortune 500 company because of who I knew my connections, the old boy network, and I'm in the room and they're talking about what's at the next HR retreat. Am I willing to speak up and talk about, are we doing identity work with our employees? That's a risk. And I'm in that room because of my privilege. And I'm in that room probably with a lot of white people. And am I willing to take the risk to bring up that sensitive topic, that topic that will probably have a lot of people roll their eyes, scoff, or look the other way? But am I willing to risk the privilege that got me into that room to try and advance the conversation? Um, my current sense is that white work sounds something like that. In a personal setting, it would be I'm at a dinner with another family who either just had a child or who's going to have a child. And they tell me that they only want to send their kids to private school because the schools in their neighborhood aren't good. Am I willing to risk my relationship with them? Am I willing to risk my relationship with them to bring up the topic of why their schools aren't good or what do they mean by their schools aren't good? What does that mean to them? What does that school look like? Who goes to that school now? Why isn't it good? Am I willing to risk my, relationship with them to bring that up and advance the conversation. I think that white work has something to do with that. I heard you call out three different prongs. Um, I heard you say there's, there's one part of white work that is about learning to be subversive and learning to create agitation and disruption, particularly when we think about systems. I heard you say there's another part of white work that is white people working with white people, collaborating, discussing, challenging, et cetera. Uh, and then I heard you say that there's this third part of white work, which is white people determining um, what their relationship with privilege is and, and being explicit about how they need to learn to re-relate to or use or access or deny or could be lots of other verbs, uh, their privilege in order to progress, in order, in order for us to chip away at the racism that we see or progress the conversation. Anything there, James, or add? No, I think you're right. I think, um, I still think at least the way I'm, the way I'm modeling it now is that that piece, subvert and disrupt, I view as two different things. So if I'm, if I feel like I'm in a position to subvert a racist system, to me, that's, that's more about allyship maybe than it is white work because that subversion could be totally based on my position, my authority, you know, whatever my context is. 
Now disruption, I view more of is, is kind of the second point you said, which is like, when you're in a room, how do you advance the conversation? I think disruption is definitely a part of white work and for, and for white people to disrupt other white people. And you don't want to go so far as to try and talk about someone else's lived experience. Um, but you, white people are in a unique position to challenge other people that look like them. Um, and we're in that position because of our privilege. And I think, I think white work comes down to how much of that are you willing to do? How, how much, I don't know if it's right to call it a risk, but do you have the courage? Um, do you have the willpower? Do you have the knowledge to challenge people and disrupt them like that? James's honesty is really revealing. And for me, it's one of the most illuminating parts of this episode. He begins to raise some real challenges and ask some real questions for us to consider. Can you combat anti-whiteness as a white person? Do you know what it means to take on anti-whiteness when it comes to the institutions and formalized structures when those are the very things that rewarded you? Can you take on the risk of being unpopular amongst your white peers, your family members, your neighbors, to lose all kinds of potential capital and say and do what is the right thing when there's real risk associated with that. See, now we're getting real because it's not about just being in a diversity conversation or putting the Black Lives Matter sign in your yard, it's going back to the institutions and the people and saying, but how do you treat black and brown people? And the real risk comes when you have to step into that courage and then there's a fallout. It can be easier to do the work in your outer circles, but can you find the strength to challenge whiteness and racist echoes in the most trusted and proximate white allies and loved ones enough to lose being a part of your tribe. When you begin to answer these questions and apply them to your life, you realize that whiteness is a golden sickness, a disease of sorts, a malady that obscures what we think, who we value, what we hold on to, what we draw power, beauty, fairness, and progress from. But before it's any of that, it's a privilege. It's your advantage. It's the thing that makes you first. We have to throw the whole thing out. Not some of it, not most of it. And white people have to be willing to throw all of it out. If we agree that whiteness really, really is indeed a sickness that needs to be excised. Here's the deal. White people don't have the only scalpel to remove this malady, but they arguably have the sharpest one. As you've been engaging with other white people, James, like what are, what are you hearing? What, what do you see the, um, what do you see as some of their common efforts? What do you see as some of the common struggles or fears? What are the trends that you're observing as you chat with people? <laughs> I suppose it depends what group of white people you're talking to. <laughs> um, you know, for me, that ranges from, you know, the like comical almost person who's like woke, right? And who 
wants to have the conversation with you, but then, you know, at, at nine o'clock goes to their cushy job, comes home, enjoys their great meal and doesn't do anything else. Right. They just, they just have the knowledge or they think they have the knowledge. Um, to the other kind of person who the topic comes up and they, you know, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's probably true. Uh, you know, how about the Cardinals though? <laughs> so they change the topic. Um, and I think the other group of people are, are people who, you know, the, the, we had a black president group, like, what do you mean? There's not a problem. Um, and I think there's different strategies for talking to each of those people, but I can say personally, I probably don't do enough to talk to the second one, the one who just wants to change the topic. Cause I think that person probably is ready to have the conversation in some senses, but, um, you know, they're not going to sit down and be uncomfortable unless you kind of make the setting so they can do that. What, what's at the heart of that? What's the purpose for you of that white work? And when you sit down to have conversations, of course, there's a world in which we want to help people wake up to the toxicity of racism and the prevalence of racism so that they can make changed behaviors. And that doesn't tend to happen in the course of a conversation. You know, we're talking about your TAL Academy and uh, many weeks and, and multiple programs. So for you, what's at the heart? What's the heart of the purpose of, of those conversations? I think there's a moment, I can't recall mine readily, but when you say, wait a minute, this can't just be about me feeling good for trying to have this conversation. It has to be something more. Um, and I can tell you that my answer to that definitely changes based on my context, which is probably good, right? So if I'm thinking about the family who's deciding where to send their kid to school, right? Like I'm hoping to have this conversation so they understand how school system labels even started. And, you know, people will say that testing is actually a, a weapon against communities of color, not something to try and God for them help. It's more of a way to, to criminalize communities of color and tell them they're failing. Um, and to like bring their consciousness up to a point where they can make a different decision about how they perceive their schools. I think in another setting, I mean, I'm thinking of, of, you know, people who I know who are lawyers, right? And if you um, work in, in criminal law, right? How, how through a conversation can I try and help create a, create a lens for you to look through the world where you understand the implications of institutionalized racism and how, you know, whatever your case is, how, how, how an institutionally racist, racist system created that situation. Um, how does it perceive your belief around you know, like crime and punishment, right? How, do, how does that, how does it affect your beliefs around that? So I, I, the long answer to your question is it's contextual, I think. Um, and I think my goals, my aspirations are evolving to something that is more than just about me and hopefully something that is actually doing good for my white community. <laughs> when you're chatting with people and you ask them, what is your white work? And they say, I don't know. How do you, what do you believe is necessary for each of us as white people to go from a, a crippling fear of, I don't know, to a personalized response of this is, this is incomplete. 
um, and imperfect perhaps, but this is my clear white work to be taking on in the world. Yeah. I mean, let me be clear. I don't ask that question enough of people. Um, and I should ask it more and I should ask it of myself more. Um, but I think the first thing that comes to mind is for people to have the courage to start. I mean, the people that are interested but haven't done much of this work, they need to have the courage to try. They need to, they need to, uh, you know, say, hey, I'm, I'm going to risk being wrong. And I can tell you, even talking now, in the back of my mind, I'm so worried about saying something that is wrong. I don't know that there's a wrong answer, so it seems like a silly concern. I'm so worried about saying something that offends someone. Um, and it's kind of nerve wracking to try and talk about this and say, hey, as a white person, this is my understanding of what this means. Um, but it's not really about me. And I hope that whatever I contribute to the conversation helps other people evolve and grow so we can all make progress. You're digging into all kinds of juicy stuff, James. You're doing this, this beautiful. And I think we'll be really um, illuminating. You know, one, one call to action I heard you give pretty, pretty loud and clear there is um, risk being wrong. In fact, I, I pushed it to embrace being wrong. We don't have any model in history of whiteness as good. It has never been a construct that has promoted goodness in the world. And so we're, we're working to, we're working towards something, the, the use of whiteness as positive in the world, as liberatory in the world, something that's never been created or done. And, and, and so the idea that we're going to get this right is, um, or, or that we ever could get it right as we figure out our way for how to, how to break the force of white supremacy apart and, and rebuild something liberatory in its place. I mean, being wrong, getting it wrong, messing up is just going to be a part of that. Uh, and I really appreciate your call to white people to say, you, you have to step in to that risk. That's, that's a place you have to exercise courage and, and be willing to say the wrong thing, get it wrong, get called out because there's no immunization. Yeah. And, and when I reflect, my moments where I've learned the most were from when I said something wrong. <laughs> and thank God I had someone there to, like you said, call me out. Because um, those moments have created the most learning for me. Yeah, that's been true for me too. Another thing I heard you say, um, and this deeply resonates with me, is that as white people, we have the responsibility to cultivate the skills and the willingness to create a container where people can learn and grow. And if the container for the conversation that we create is hostile or attacks or shames, um, you know, certainly you and I as educators, but I think pretty much everyone on the planet knows that, that growth, we're, we're not likely to make real meaningful growth if we are under attack and being belittled or um, having shame or guilt projected uh, onto us. Um, and so I, I appreciate your underscoring that aspect of white work too, which is very individual. It, it is my job to cultivate the capacity of skills and courage and compassion to sit with another white person, regardless of where they are in their journey. 
and hold them there and hold the discomfort of that conversation so that we can take whatever, you know, big step, little step forward. How does that land with you? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so true. I mean, we, it's, it's like, you know, it's like you, you were, you know, we've been lucky enough to get to have some of these conversations and to get to see the world through a different lens. I mean, that's a gift. Um, and I'm grateful for it. And it is totally unfair to then wield that gift as a weapon and shame other people because they don't have it too, or they haven't experienced it too. So there's an absolute responsibility to slow things down for other people and try and share with them what you've learned too, um, and make it safe for them and, and allow them to be uncomfortable, but to be uncomfortable together. And I think the other thing about that is, as white people, we don't have to do that. And that's a piece of our privilege. We don't have to have that conversation. So when I was talking earlier about, are you willing to risk that privilege, right? Like part of our privilege is that we, like white people will be fine without doing white work. Um, and that's a huge privilege. So there has to be a decision to step out of that privilege and actively go do the white work. I think we've all at some point asked ourselves, especially as people of color, why aren't white people doing more? And that's what I found powerful about this exchange between Laura and James as a response to that habitual ominous question. They are really talking about what it takes to move past performative awareness, care or concern around racism and what it means to really delve into dismantling whiteness. Sometimes one of the biggest resistance that you hear from white people is that they're really afraid of saying the wrong thing or being called the racist. And that fear um, that's really embedded in the sense of entitlement uh, that keeps them protected at all costs limits their ability and their resistance to change. So instead of stepping up and saying, I'm willing to be wrong, and eventually get my actions right, what they have to preserve is their relationship to perfectionism and always maintaining their goodness and their dignity, and they do nothing. When you choose not to act, this is what you're really saying. It means prove to me that my discomfort is worth your humanity. And that can feel like a detour that helps no one but white people stay away from examining themselves and taking on the real work that's needed in our society. So, James, what kind of white parent do you aspire to be? <laughs> that's a good way to ask that question. Um, you know, it's, I think, um, you know, in 2018, we have the words, right? We say, an anti-racist education, anti-racist parenting. Um, you know, in 19, like in 1970, we didn't have those words. And I, and I say that because I think, I don't, you know, maybe there's not a set of standards to judge this by. I think I had a, a generally anti-racist upbringing um, without it being called that. And, you know, some of the, the evidence of that um, has to do with a lot of the experiences that I had when I was younger. I mean, my, 
my mom actually was back when she was a kid. So speaking of someone else getting anti-racist education, my mom, when she was a child, was part of a, a reintegration program where they're trying to desegregate schools. So they actually bust kids from one uh, one part of town to a different part of town and, and kids from that part of town to her part of town to try to try and desegregate the schools. Um, and when she t would tell me about that, she would follow that up by quickly showing me that she had learned how to step <laughs> when she was in school and she would start banging her heels on the ground and slapping her thighs. Um, and she kind of showed, I, you know, I'm what, six years old. I don't know this, but she's showing me the value in different cultures and multiple perspectives. Um, when we were growing up, my parents placed a high value on understanding the native traditions of the people who inhabited Arizona long, long, long time before any white people came there. Um, so much so that I actually, when I turned 13, um, had a initiation ceremony in a teepee with real native folks, um, which again taught me the value in different cultures and to kind of hold certain things sacred that were different than what my friends were holding sacred and what my friends valued. James talks about one of the ways that we disrupt racial legacies and hierarchies. Here he talks about the indelible mark that his mother left on him, using and valuing her past as a child that experienced the public policy around school reintegration, sharing with him some of the cultural experiences and perspectives she embraced attending school with black children. I think it's important to consider the ways that white people often have the opportunity to meaningfully accept, reject, or participate in the additional cultures around them. What could have been a stain, racism, instead became a gain in terms of acceptance, cultural integration, and the subtle reinforcement of the belief that everyone's presence and humanity matters. But when I think about what my responsibility is as a parent, it's a first a daunting task because I don't want to mess it up. Um, but second is, is, is it, it feels like a real commitment and a call to action, which kind of like gets me hyped. Like, let's figure this out. We're going to, we're going to raise the most anti-racist child ever. Woo. Um, and when I think about what that means, I, I think about, I'm sending my kid to the neighborhood school just about no matter what, um, because schools need to, to have diversity. Schools need to have all sorts of people in them. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to, to have a, 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 you know, I'm an administrator in a school and my wife has a director job in a nonprofit. So we could send our kids other places, but we want to send them into our neighborhood. Um, I think about what kind of books we're going to read to our children. I mean, we spent hours when we were making our baby registry looking for what people were calling anti-racist books that we could read our child from, you know, one to till she's in first grade. Um, and then I think about what kind of, what are we going to do with our kids? Are we going to, you know, go to San Diego and just sit on the beach or are we going to take a trip to another country and really see people that are different than us? Um, and, and when I say different, I mean, really what we see is people are the same, right? You hear one thing about South America in the news, but if you go to South America, like you have a different experience. So, um, when you're born, you don't see difference, I think. You, you just, you're seeing that you're very similar and then we're taught to see difference. Um, 
And I think my parents did a good job of showing me how some, how people were the same in a lot of ways, but the different social constructs had made people call them different. Um, and I hope I can do a similar thing for our children. Um, and the task seems daunting and heavy, but in, the, in another way, it, it, it sounds kind of fun. And I'm sure I'll kind of, I'll, I'll be advancing my own anti-racist education at the same time. So we're all going to be growing together. The whole family. <laughs> I really appreciate that you've thought through these very specific ways, these things you want to do, these actions you plan to take. I, I think that has to be a part of our white work. And I also think that so often we're not going to know exactly what to do. We have to get clear on who we are committing to be and the values that we're committed to holding sacred so that when we get to those moments of crisis internally or externally, there is a clear North star that guides us into courage that, that helps us choose courage instead of fear or helps us choose connection instead of disconnection. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about who you aspire, who and how you aspire to be as a white parent, what do you want to hold sacred? I, and I think, I mean, you, it's, it's good to talk about it as like talking about what you aspire to be versus what you maybe could easily just fall into being right. Like you could trip forward and be this, but what are you going to actually climb up to be? Um, as a parent, what do I aspire to be? I mean, I don't want to get cliche with, you know, some of the basic things that everyone say, you know, I, I aspire to be, I aspire to be someone who shows a lot of love. Um, I aspire to be someone who shows that they value risk taking. Um, I aspire to be someone who values what you've learned from a mistake um, and doesn't spend as much time around the mistake itself. Um, I aspire to be someone who's close and that holds, holds the family close, uh, to each other, not just me to one member of the family, but the family kind of holding the whole unit together. Um, man, what to be aspire to be with a family. It's, <laughs> this brings more emotion than thinking about my mom, strangely, probably because when you think about your own aspirations with a family, you're drawn to what your parents probably aspired for their family and for you. And I'd like to think they got everything they aspired for. I guess I aspire to be kind of like them in a way. <laughs> um, as an anti-racist parent specifically, I want to aspire to to try and expose my children to disruption in things outside the box. I, I aspire to challenge my children and I aspire to set up my children to challenge other people. Um, I want them, that's a good reputation to have, I think. Um, so I hope I can set them up with the tools to do that. Yeah, I, I hear challenge as a value in and of itself. Um, a set of skills, a set of values, um, set of abilities, a set of choices, but 
with the notion of challenge as being essential. I'm, I'm moved deeply by all that you shared, James, and, and moved by your emotion too. I think when the emotion comes in is the marker that we're having a really honest conversation that that in and of itself is disruptive to white supremacy. I'm always really curious when I ask this question because, well, A, I find it beautiful. I love hearing um, who people are at their essence and, and who they aspire to be and, and who they are practicing being in the world. I also get really curious when I ask this question of, of um, white folks in particular, because one of the questions that's always in the back of my head is, to what extent are these values and these ways of being in direct opposition to white dominant culture and to white supremacy? And um, so that we're not unintentionally strengthening the forces that we're, that we're working against. And I really appreciate that the things that you shared, love, risk, challenge, connection, um, failure, and growth, uh, I think our, our ways of being that when truly embodied or when multiplied across a family unit or when lived out can stand in direct opposition to forces of white supremacy. This conversation is so prudent because it actually gets at the heart of one of the most stubborn beliefs about racism, that it will naturally atrophy and die off due to generations of old white ignorant people disappearing. That's one of the passive ways that white people often think we can combat racism, waiting. Bilar and James talk about what happens when we treat racism as a conveyor belt that's carrying hate off and away. Nothing actually changes. To actually change whiteness, you need to take things off the conveyor belt, which means that you need to make a conscious decision to remove and deal with these things. Do different, be different. And while children are indeed blank slates, the world moves fast and children are continually being shaped and influenced by things being said, done, presented, and explained to them. It means that conversations and culture have a chance to permeate their minds in a way that can change the trajectory of arbitrary whiteness, getting white people to disrupt their legacy or ingrain thought patterns. It's to the point that disruption doesn't happen just by making statements, but choosing different actions and making specific investments in things in the opposite direction of whiteness. James has spent a lot of time today working through so many vulnerable and reflective layers of whiteness, how it empowers him and disempowers others, limits him and limits others. He's also had an able guide in Laura who chides and guides James with a sort of tender challenge that can likely only happen when white people seek to engage each other on race and identity in a way that can be accountable, provocative, and even healing. It's a moment, a path forward, that might only seem possible in the careful, capable hands of a white whisperer like Laura. In this final stretch, we hear from Laura about what reflections and power she draws from and sits with at the core of her why in doing racial work that's centered on whiteness. James, don't, you don't, you don't, you can, don't lie to me. You could say, um, based on this conversation, I can't think of a, a thing, but 
how can I love on you and support you in your white work? Um, well, you know, we talked, uh, a part of our conversation talked about, you know, creating fertile grounds to, to have the conversation. So, um, you know, it, it, my, my, uh, stress level coming into this was around, I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to say something that's not true. I'm going to say something that, uh, you know, doesn't resonate with someone, something that only fits my experience and, and my experience is a particularly privileged one. So that's just a real symptom of, you know, how much I've contributed to white supremacy without knowing. So those are my fears. Um, and you were very affirming. Um, you know, you, you told me more than once that something I said resonated with you, that you could connect to it or you could relate to it in, in a different way. And every time you said that to me, you gave me that kind of feedback. It allowed me to feel a little more comfortable, probably pull back the curtain a little more um, and take more of a risk with something I'm thinking about, but hadn't said yet, maybe. Right. So, you know, we haven't met each other. Um, we're meeting on the phone, right? Which is, you know, pretty standard for 2018 probably. Um, but it, it, it allowed us to, you know, start to build a relationship. And, and that's, I think probably our conversation got deeper as time passed. Let me share a little bit about why I show up the way that I do. Um, I, I grew up in an opposite setting than you did. I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I have a lovely, beautiful, wonderful family and they're products of the South and they didn't go to college and, um, grew up in a racist environment, you know, uh, and, um, like you, as I started, so I, I remember, um, I knew I was queer when I was really young. I think it was clear to me by the time I was maybe seven. And um, I, I also grew up in a very religious environment and home, and I knew being gay was not a good thing to be, even if I didn't really understand exactly what being gay meant. And so from a really early age, I think I was drawn to people who I perceived were othered in some way because I felt othered and I wanted communion and, um, and from a really early age, I could see that the people who were treated as others were people with black and brown skin where I grew up. And it wasn't until I got to college. So fast forward, um, you know, I, I, when I went to college, I went to college in my hometown. Um, I started taking classes that, um, introduced me to the notion of institutionalized racism. And for the first time in my life, I was able to say like, oh, that's what I was seeing when I saw John being sent to the principal's office for the same tiny misbehavior as, um, you know, a, a white boy in our class and John was a black boy. Or like I, I started to understand language to these things that I had noticed and experienced and participated in. And I had a lot, I mean, I had lifetimes of learning. As James and Laura begin to wrap up their conversation, we arguably find James wrung out and maybe feeling a bit more open and broken from his exploration. 
unpacking the various things that reinforce the power and comfort of his whiteness to really see that there are incomplete things that he's got to do, no matter how inconvenient. The rabbit hole of racism and white identity work is probably less a rabbit hole, in fact, for James, it's probably more of a black hole, entering into a pathway that compresses and creates a tremendous amount of tension around what it means to pack all the things that you might have been incentivized to keep separate, suddenly coming together. It means that James and Laura have to also talk about how one of the tenets of white work must include repairing and healing white people as they undergo this work. It has some deep impact on the psyche and that, amongst other things, needs to be addressed too. I've been met by two different types of white people. White people who probably had great intentions, but were not able to meet me where I was in my learning and often um, didn't help me take a step forward. Um, they were using shame and blame as their tools. And I, I want to point that out as different than the shame and guilt I felt felt internally. Um, like that, that those were my own feelings to grapple with. And I had to go through those and feel those, but, but um, people who are ultimately unable to sit with me and acknowledge some of the real racist things I had said or done or believed um, with good intentions, with, with, with complete ignorance. And then I was met by a different set of white people who could hold me there and be with me there and, and be really, really patient about the stuff I was going to have to work through and the swampland inside myself I was going to have to muck through in order to have some of the critical ahas that I needed to have in order to take steps forward. That's been true of all humans, but I point that out with white people in particular since we're talking about white work and what has to be what, what has to be true about how we can be in community and connection with one another as white people. And so for me, it's a very intentional choice um, not to affirm everything, especially when it, 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 uh, it's, it's problematic, but to affirm our humanity even if a word, you know, is problematic or a belief is, you know, um, not in alignment with liberation or whatever, but, but can't, no matter what, can I be with you in our shared humanity? And can I choose connection instead of separation? Um, and that's really, really hard for me, especially when I'm with white people who are, um, not open about their learning yet. They're defensive and they're scared and they don't want to be a part of the problem. You know, they want to be quote unquote good white people. And so they're not ready yet to acknowledge the ways that they are a part of the system that can get really, really, really hard for me, but it's a, it's a conscious and an active choice. And, and the more you show your humanity to me, the easier it is for me to be with you in it, James. And you were so generous through our conversation but that's an active choice. I have a teacher. She is my teacher in both racial justice and she is my teacher in Buddhism and my practice of Buddhism. Her name's Reverend Kyoto, uh, Angel Kyoto Williams. And she always says, and I, I, this, I don't think this language is or originally hers, but like I have an obligation to sit in a seat of love 
in these conversations. And at the point at which I can no longer hold on to that, I have to leave because the damage done by my hurling back criticism or blaming or shaming just furthers the problem of white supremacy. At that point, we disconnect. And to me, that is ultimately what white supremacy is. It's a power that wields and uses exploitation and power and favors disconnection and, and separating humans rather than bringing them together. So it was a long-winded way um, of, of, of saying that the choice to see you is a, is a choice and, um, and a privilege in and of itself. And I personally believe that for us as white people doing white work, uh, it's maybe the most important choice we can make. I'm curious how all of that sits or doesn't sit with you though, James. I mean, it's, it's, it's so valuable to hear, you know, your own journey and how, you know, you've come to this space. But the, the thing that I'm, I'm thinking about just from what you said there is, is um, valuing humanity. Um, and it, it made, you said it was a choice, right? And in a way it's, it's like, it's a shame. It's a choice. Like, don't you wish we were pre-programmed to value each other's humanity? Like where, what went wrong there? Um, but I take it a step further and I, I think that's a skill. Um, and I felt that you very skillfully um, were able to communicate with me in a way that allowed me to be more authentic and vulnerable. I keep going back and reflecting on the discussion with James that was at the beginning of this conversation. The moment when James didn't want to go and be with other white people to conduct his own sort of introspection around race. His actions highlight a common problem that when white people have the responsibility and the opportunity to just have a discussion amongst themselves and to do the work, you know what they do? They opt out. And it was a black woman, his peer, that had to go and remind him through a very blatant statement to get his ass up to go do his work by simply saying, welcome to my world. This is the call for action for him and his community to engage and to see the internal work that has yet to be done that has always forfeited from one white generation to the next. But isn't unlearning such a powerful gift? We see on his journey, James equipping himself to do his work and work with other white people, his friends, his colleagues, his peers, without all of the formality. But going in and interrupting those small decisions such as where your child goes to school and how you choose to vote and justifying the impact of what those decisions bear out for you versus how they actually create consequences for communities of color. What I can also respect about James is that he really put all of it on the table. It was enlightening to see and understand the dynamic around parenting in undoing whiteness because i can imagine raising a child who from the early stages of life can start doing the work creates a generational responsibility 
to white work. And so the question for white parents now becomes, what about my parenting? What about the rearing of my child reinforces what is happening in our society? Can I see it? How can I make sure that my child is prepared to confront and undo it and not to participate in it? My grandmother prepared me to be a black man in this world. And I remember before heading out to the school bus, my grandmother kneeling down, devoutly religious and putting oil on my head, reciting a prayer and reminding me of two things. You are God's son and God has a plan for your life. But inevitably, she was preparing me to face some really harsh realities that were going to come up every day, even starting in elementary school. See, black people prepare their child for the hard road. Whiteness prepares the road for their child. What a distinction, what a difference. So if we understand that dynamic for a white child, what is the role of white parenting to undo the system that holds us back? What truths as a community do we have to engage with to do that? 